My body, my choice is a slogan that has recently been forcefully propelled back into the public ear. Not that it ever went away, but it's been very much public lately. It's the battle cry of the pro-choice movement. And I'm going to leave aside for a moment the underlying issue with this slogan that, uh, that abortion is not just an issue about one person's body, but is indeed about a second human being, the baby. And I want you to think about that statement itself, just as it is, my body, my choice. And I think that we can all agree with the statement in some ways. Now, to be absolutely clear, I'm, I'm pro-life, and so I don't, I don't condone abortion, but there are many things that we don't want to be forced to do with our bodies against our will. Obviously, things like rape or sex trafficking or any kind of coerced sexuality are wrong. You want to be able to make your own medical decisions. And so we can agree that we think we should have some level of bodily autonomy. But what might the cross of Jesus have to say to us about our bodily autonomy? As we walk through the letter of 1 Corinthians together, we're, talking, we're taking note, rather, of how the cross shapes our lives, how it should shape our church. So we might expect that Jesus' death and his resurrection have something to say about our bodily autonomy. Are we all free to simply do whatever we want to do with our bodies? Do our bodies ultimately matter if what we're talking about is spirituality? Doesn't God care more about what's in here, in the heart, than he does about what's out here in the body? In this passage, Paul says that you should glorify God in your body. That means that you should use your body in a way that reflects God's purposes, reflects his character, and that points other people to him. And this applies to all sorts of situations and issues in our culture. I've already brought up a favorite slogan of the pro-choice movement, my body, my choice. Does glorifying God in your body have anything to say to that issue? What about other issues of bodily autonomy in our culture? For instance, what about an issue like transgenderism? The idea that a person can be the opposite gender of their bodily or biological sex, or in some people's thinking that a person's sex isn't determined by their body or the biology at all? Does the command to glorify God in your body say anything to those ideas? Does the cross have anything to say? Or what about sexual immorality in, genu in general? Homosexual practices, adultery, sex outside of marriage, pornography. What might the cross of Jesus teach us about the rationalizations and the excuses that people make for using their bodies in these sorts of ways. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, the Apostle Paul, in this letter, he addresses specifically a kind of sexual immorality, and, 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 and as with 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he spoke to the idea of uh, incest or a, a man sleeping with his stepmother, it may strike us as a kind of sexual immorality that was so severe that it could appear as if there's really not much application, at least to most of our lives. In this case, in 1 Corinthians 6, it looks as if some men in the church were going to visit prostitutes. And that seems pretty bad, and the way that Paul addresses the issue certainly applies to some of the issues of our culture that we've already mentioned, but it applies in a more general way as well. Because while you might not be committing some of the sexual sins that Paul mentions or that I just mentioned, you do have a body, and what you do with your body matters to God. The Apostle Paul says you should glorify God in your body, 
So I want to take a look at the reasons that Paul cites that you should glorify God in your body. And as we do, we're going to make some application to cultural and personal issues as we go along. And the first reason that you should glorify God in your body is that your body isn't irrelevant to your spirituality. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verses 12 to 14. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful or permissible for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Seems pretty clear that Paul is quoting a favorite slogan or rationale or excuse of the Corinthians, and then he's answering what they usually said. And this isn't the only time that he'll say this. He, he's quoting, apparently, a phrase they like to use, which was something like, all things are lawful, or all things are permissible, and then he gives some correction to that misunderstanding. They seem to think that their spirituality made them perfectly free. And Paul, too, believed that their spirituality and their, their love of Jesus, their faith in Christ, made them free through Jesus, but they were defining freedom differently than the Apostle Paul or than God would define it. They thought that freedom meant license to do whatever they wanted, but the question they should have been asking when making judgments about right and wrong or how they use their bodies was not just, is this permissible? They should have been asking, is it good? Is it helpful? Does it build up? The spiritual freedom God gives through Jesus is not intended to just give us license to do what feels good, but he intends to free us to do what is ultimately good, both what is good for us and what is good for others. And then there's the issue of whether using the excuse all, all things are lawful or all things are permissible really makes a person free at all. Because Paul responded by saying that he wouldn't be mastered or dominated by anything. Sometimes the things we think are an expression of our freedoms are really an expression of slavery to something. And we're gonna come back to that idea in a little while, but for now, let's try to bring this excuse into the present because we may not use the slogan, all things are permissible for me, but I have heard a lot of people when I'm talking with them, him and haw about what's going on in their lives, either because they fear that I'm judging them, even though I've not said anything about it at all, or because they know that what's going on in their lives is wrong and they're experiencing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they follow up with something like, but God really cares more about what's in my heart, or something like that. And while we might not spell it out, the implication of this kind of reasoning in our lives is that God doesn't care what you do with your body. And the Corinthians rationalized even further. They said, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And that seems pretty logical. God made us to digest food. He made food for us to digest. And the implication is that they applied this to their sexuality as well. It would sound something like this. The body is meant for sex and sex is meant for the body. Have you ever heard anyone use an excuse like that? Again, they might not use those exact words. They might not put it, phrase it quite like that. But oftentimes, they'll use something that sounds or means basically the same thing, and they'll imply that sex is really no big deal, that sexuality is not really a big deal. I once heard someone compare sex to sneezing. 
It's just another one of your bodily functions that you wouldn't try to hold a sneeze in, would you? So why would you try to hold your sexuality in? And sometimes those who claim to be Christians will take the logic of this even further. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, and God will do away with them both, Paul writes. Now, that last part about God doing away with them both may have been an addition that Paul made to the Corinthians saying, to their excuse, all things are permissible, but it might have been how they were thinking about it themselves as well. They were thinking that when Jesus returns and and believers, uh, uh, or or when we die, our bodies won't matter anymore, and it's going to be all spiritual things. But the Apostle Paul reminds us, and he'll tell us later, that when Jesus returns and believers are resurrected, our bodies will be of a different kind. Yes, our needs will be different, but we still will have a bodily existence. But sometimes people over-spiritualize things as an excuse not to honor God with their body. Some speak and act as if when, when we die, we're just gonna be pure spirit forever. We won't have bodies. And this leads to the conclusion that our bodies don't really matter. They're disposable. They're shells to be used and discarded like plastic straws or AA batteries. We'll get as much as we can out of them while we're here on this, on this earth. We'll, we'll suck the life out of it, get as much pleasure out of our bodily existence as we can, but then when we're done, we'll throw them away because they're disposable anyway. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. That's not what the Bible says. It never did. And it's not Christian belief. In fact, that's That's pagan or Eastern mysticism belief. Listen again to what Paul says. He says, but God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. We don't believe that when you die, you fly away to heaven where you're gonna remain without a body with God forever. We don't teach that you're gonna play a metaphysical harp while lying on a metaphysical cloud for all eternity. Instead, we know this. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The whole point of Jesus being raised was that we might know that God is going to raise us up as well. That is, he'll raise our bodies from the dead. If the body is disposable, why did God raise Jesus from the dead as proof that he will also raise those of us who believe in him? If the body doesn't matter and so what you do with your body doesn't matter, why was Jesus raised bodily? Jesus' resurrection is proof that God does care about the body and therefore cares what you do with the body. So you can't just say food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food and then proceed to treat your body as if it's just a lump of meaningless desires or as if sex is no big deal because the body, Paul says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but it is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Again, the resurrection is proof that God cares about your body and he cares about what you do with it. The body was made to honor the Lord, not to dishonor him through sexual immorality. You have a spirit, you have a will, you have a conscience given to you by God and they are to govern and to use your body in a way that honors him. Your decisions, your desires, and your sexuality are not just like a sneeze or any other bodily function that need not be suppressed. There is meaning in these things. And the meaning of our bodies extends beyond our present wants as evidenced by the resurrection of Jesus. You should be very careful when you're living your life about using the phrase, God doesn't care if I fill in the blank, whatever it is that you're trying to excuse in your life. Because that's a really low bar. 
And it's a poor excuse when you realize that God wants you to live in a way that builds you up and doesn't just use you up, and that he wants you to be genuinely free, not mastered by sinful desires. It's also a poor excuse when you realize that God does care what you do with your body. So believer, I wanna challenge you today that you stop simply asking what you can get away with and still be a Christian. Stop asking how far is too far. Don't have such a low view of God's purposes for you and for your body that you're only concerned with trying to do the bare minimum to squeak by and still have that ticket to heaven in your hand when you die. That's not God's intention for you. Instead, ask the question that Paul implies when he says that we're not just supposed to ask if all things are permissible or if they're all okay, but we're supposed to ask, is this going to master me? Is this going to enslave me? Or will this be helpful? Will this build me up? Will this further my relationship with Jesus? Will it help me become more like him or will it pull me away from him? The first reason you should glorify God with your body is that your body isn't irrelevant to your spirituality, to your person. God has made you a whole being, body and spirit, and you won't one day discard your body as if it never mattered in the first place. Jesus' resurrection is the proof of that. The second reason to honor God in your body is that you are joined with Christ. Let's read verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Listen, if Paul didn't use this imagery in the Bible, I wouldn't use it. Because it's a little bit edgy for my taste, typically. But here's what Paul says. When you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. He comes to live in you. And as such, you are spiritually joined to Jesus. Now, we don't want to press Paul's words beyond what he wrote. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He doesn't mean that your spirit is mixed up with or confused with God's spirit somehow, or that you become God in some way. Instead, he's making a parallel statement to his quotation from Genesis 2.24. The two will become one flesh. Now, we know that when a couple is married and they have a sexual relationship, that their bodies aren't confused or that you somehow suddenly can't tell them apart as if they aren't still individual people. Instead, what we mean is that they are joined by a special physical and spiritual and uh, psychological bond. And when you believe in Jesus, you are joined to him spiritually. And since we are united with Christ, the Apostle Paul says that we become his body, or we become the expression of Jesus' presence on earth. Maybe you've heard that as believers in Jesus, we are the hands and feet of Jesus. Later in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul will talk about the church as the body of Christ. He'll say that every believer is like a different part of that body. And so what Paul means when he says that our bodies are members of Christ is not like how we typically use the term member, because we usually use this metaphorically or metaphysically. You could be a member of the country club or a member of the gym, or you could be a member of the church. But what Paul means is something more like parts, pieces, limbs, 
and organs. He means, do you not know that your bodies are the limbs and organs of Christ? And apparently, there were men in the church who were visiting prostitutes and using some of the excuses that we've already covered. And that wasn't a particularly odd thing in their culture any more than uh, strip clubs and pornography are odd things in our culture. And Paul uses this shocking image, you are the limbs and organs of Christ, in order to get their attention. If you've been joined to Christ, then your body is a limb or organ of Jesus. Should you take the limbs or organs of Jesus and in an act of sexual immorality, join them to a prostitute? Obviously not. That thought is appalling. Again, we shouldn't press Paul's words beyond what he says. Jesus isn't guilty of our sin because we're members of his body. Instead, the point is that if you've been joined to Christ in purity, you should use your body not for sexual immorality, but for purity. Being joined to a prostitute makes you one flesh with her. And I think this explanation from the Bible teacher Thomas Schreiner is helpful in understanding what, we, what this means. He says, Paul is not claiming that every sexual union constitutes marriage, but he does suggest that sexual relations forge a profound relationship between two people. The notion that a sexual liaison is casual and insignificant runs counter to what is taught about sexual relations in the Old Testament. There is a profound psychophysical union in sexual consummation, but being united with the Lord has an even deeper significance. For those who belong to Christ are one spirit with him. Given the union of believers with Christ, sexual liaisons with prostitutes tarnish the bond between Christ and believer. And this is true not only of sexual liaisons with prostitutes, but with sexual immorality of all kinds. God did not make sex to be a casual thing, but a holy thing that unites two people. And our culture has determined that the only time that sex is bad is if someone is coerced against their will. But God designed sex to support the union of the marriage of one man and one woman, and when it doesn't, it can lead only to brokenness for individuals and brokenness in a relationship with Christ. And for a Christian, sex is made all the more serious by this fact, that it leads to brokenness in a relationship with God. God cares what you do with your body, including with your sexuality, and what you do with your body has an effect on your relationship with God because now you are joined to Christ and your body is his limb, it is his organ, and it not only gives a more serious view to sex, but it gives a serious view to all of our lives because it means that you're not just acting on your own for yourself, but you're acting as part of Christ. Wherever you go, you take Jesus with you and you represent him. And this can be a very good and encouraging thing. No matter where you are, there Jesus is with you and you can represent him through your presence and through your actions. You are the hands and the feet of Jesus. So your actions and your good works should have increased significance. Where will you go today? What restaurant are you gonna visit after church? What job site will you find yourself on tomorrow morning? What locker room will you be in, student, on Tuesday afternoon? Because in all of these places, you are the hands and the feet of Jesus. And this potentially gives profound meaning to everything that we do. But it's also a sobering reality, because as Paul applies it, it means that when you're looking at something with jealousy or with lust, 
when you are speaking an abusive word, when you get drunk, when you gossip, when you're lazy, or when you have sex outside of marriage, you're doing that with a limb or an organ that belongs to Jesus. There was some good advice that parents used to give to kids. Uh, My age, my parents gave it to me. I heard it given to others. I don't know if parents still give this advice. I haven't heard it used in a while, but perhaps some of you will remember it. They would say things like this. Remember, wherever you go, you take Jesus with you. And that's a comfort for when you're in need of help. But it's also a warning when you're being tempted. You should glorify God in your body because you have been joined to Christ. It's pretty astounding to think that God has given us an opportunity for such a close relationship with Jesus and has given so much meaning to our lives and our bodies that his word teaches that our bodies are members of Christ. Here's another astonishing thought that we talked about a moment ago during communion. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 18 to 19. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Verse 18 is a bit tricky to understand. Flee sexual immorality, we all can understand what that means. That part is pretty clear, but what does it mean to say that a sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Paul seems to be implying that the consequences for sexual immorality are particularly serious. He doesn't mean that other kinds of sin don't affect your physical body. It's obvious that sin, like drunkenness, for instance, or even anger or laziness will affect your body. But Paul seems to say that there's a particular way that sexual sin affects people that is different from the effects of other kinds of sin. In verse 12, Paul said that he would not be dominated by anything. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, we're going to see that Paul says that a wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does, and that a husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The word translated authority in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 4, is the same word that's translated dominated in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. So Paul seems to be saying that by having sex with a prostitute in this particular case, a man was giving some kind of authority or mastery over his body to that prostitute with whom he had been joined. That would mean that he had taken what was supposed to belong to Christ and given mastery over it to another person. Perhaps we can understand the importance of what Paul was saying in more practical terms. This is how Anthony Thistleton puts it. He says, body, unlike the term flesh, denotes the human self in its wholeness and its relation to other selves. So it's arguable that in sexual acts, the mind, body, and whole person are involved. And the self shapes its identity, not in isolation, but in relation to another self with which it interacts in mutuality. I know I've already said this, but it's worth saying again that sex isn't a casual thing. This includes sexual liaisons, sex within marriage, pornography. It includes your sexual identity. How you think about sex is not no big deal. Today, people rearrange their whole lives around sexual identity. Because of cultural trends, young people are especially at risk of elevating sex to a position that it should not hold. 
the trend of transgenderism and, and the litany of other sexual identities that it brings along with it and, and, and sends a, a number of com, uh, confusing messages to our young people. You're told that your biology doesn't define your gender or even define your sex, but then you're also told that in order to no longer experience an incongruity between a person's inner sense and their body, they need to alter their body, either through drugs or surgery. We're told that gender is just a cultural construct, but then gender is highlighted above almost everything else through a litany of pronouns and external behaviors intended to attract attention to gender as if it actually was the most important thing. People are rebelling against their God-given sex in order to recreate themselves in a manner of their own choosing, and so they deny God's hand and they deny his work in their lives. They make their bodies a palette on which to paint an image that God did not intend. But in contrast, when you believe in Christ, your body becomes a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're not a temple for the worship of self gone wrong. You're a temple for the worship of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's hard to imagine imagery that could create a greater sense of importance for how you use your body. Of course God wants you to love him from the inside, from your heart. But the body is the way that we relate to our world and that we express our love and our obedience to God in it. And by the way, since the resurrection is true, your body, though it will be different in the resurrection, will be the way that you express your love for God and others forever. You won't discard it one day and it'll just be your heart floating around. Your body is the expression of your will and your heart. And so it matters what you do with it. And so when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, you're no longer a temple for worshiping every fleeting desire, every passion or sinful lust that you have. You're no longer an idol built to the image of self. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Consider the self-imposed poverty of a Christian who does not take this seriously. The Holy Spirit Spirit lives in you. What an opportunity for intimacy with God. What an opportunity for us for wisdom and direction in our lives. A life of holiness and power are not far off but are close at hand because the Spirit of God lives in you. I wonder how often believers fail to experience this life-altering closeness of the Spirit because they don't realize that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Could it be that sometimes we have offended the Holy Spirit through ignorance of his presence, ignoring him as we continue in sin? What do you suppose he thinks as you gaze through your computer screen at the images of bodies that titillate your senses but deaden your relationship and your ability to hear from him? What do you suppose happens when you ignore his presence in your body or what we would just typically call you ignore his presence in your life and instead you choose to try and redefine your life around a new identity, a new gender, a new sex. You've not been recreated in Christ as a temple to glorify the passions of your body or your flesh but as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps it's time that you cleanse that temple so that the Holy Spirit may take his place and dwell in you as he wants, and lead and guide you as he desires. I love the way that Paul closes this passage, and I think it wraps this up so well. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I've talked a little bit this morning about transgenderism, and with that, I include the breadth of other sexual identities that tend to come with that. 
And I also mentioned abortion earlier. And I think that this verse has something profound to say to these things and to the way that we deal with sexuality in our culture. We used the phrase earlier, my body, my choice. And that's the, the phrase that's used by the pro-choice movement. But it could also be ascribed to the sexual ideologies that I've mentioned. But that phrase and the ideologies it encapsulates are opposed to Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, then you've confessed your sin. You've believed that you're forgiven in Christ because Jesus died for you. The price that was paid for your salvation was the body and blood of God's Son. The world's slogan may be, my body, my choice, I can decide what I want to do, it doesn't matter, you don't have any say, God doesn't have any say, but God's slogan is, you are not your own. The world may tell you that the satisfaction and joy comes when your bodily passions and your desires are unrestrained, or when you pursue an identity that is contrary to your body, but that you believe expresses better your feelings. But you were bought with a price that demonstrated a love like no one in this world, including yourself, will ever be able to give. So you should glorify God in your body. Think about this, Jesus had a sex, but Jesus never had sex. He lived and related to the world and the people around him as a man. And so many today are trying to find their identity. This isn't a new pursuit at all. It's a human pursuit. But the focus of that pursuit has shifted primarily to sex and gender in our current culture. And if the Apostle Paul is right and sexual sin causes a distinct kind of consequence, then we might expect to see those kinds of distinct consequences rampant in our current culture, and we do. Pornography has created major problems for young people and for their ability to experience real sexual intimacy in marriage. Depression and mental illness and suicide are major concerns for young people. Both uh, just generally in the population over the last 15 years, these things have risen exponentially for young people, and especially for those who identify as transgender. And today's message is not intended to be an attack on people who experience gender dysphoria, who struggle with homosexual temptations, who have had an abortion, or who have had suicidal thoughts. Instead, it's intended as a warning for us as a body and an encouragement. People are seeking an identity, especially through the expression of their sexuality. Jesus was a man who never had sex, but found his identity not in pursuing his own desires, but in pursuing the will of God. He said, my purpose, my life, is to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. This may be particularly important if you're a young person or if you're responsible for a young person. Your friends may all be trying to figure out who they are and that may include trying to figure out their sexual identity or may include just who they're friends with or what sports they play or what grades, uh, what their grades are like or what they're interested in or where they rank among their peers and a host of other ways that we try to define ourselves and categorize ourselves. But I want you to focus on something different. What if instead of asking, who am I, you ask the question, whose am I? Because many people are looking for belonging. I spoke with one young man a while back who was struggling with his sexual identity and he was wondering if, if he was really a girl. And he said that one of the reasons he was considering this was because he didn't really have a group that he fit in with at school, but the pride group at his school had been so welcoming to him. 
In other words, he began to conform his identity to a group that was just willing to accept him. The question, whose am I, or with whom do I belong, may be more important than the question, who am I, in forming an identity. But your ultimate identity is not your pain, it's not who will accept you in spite of it. Your ultimate identity is in God who loved you enough to send his son Jesus Christ in the flesh to die for your forgiveness and for healing. You belong to him if you're a believer in Jesus. And true freedom isn't being totally on your own. It's not being autonomous. True freedom is knowing who you are and more importantly perhaps to whom you belong and where you belong. And God says that you belong to him and you belong with him. Your purpose is to know him, to love him. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And if you're struggling today with gender dysphoria, with homosexual attraction, with adultery, with addiction to pornography, with shame from an abortion, with addiction to drugs or addiction to alcohol, don't just go the route of thinking that it's no big deal. It doesn't matter what I do with my body. It is a big deal. Your body isn't irrelevant. Neither is your body just your own. You've been joined to Jesus. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. I can't think of too many things that could give your life greater purpose than knowing that the Spirit of God lives in you. And I know that you might not always feel that. You might not feel that right now and that it's not always easy to see what God is doing, but know this, you were bought with a price. He paid for your redemption with the body and the blood of his son, Jesus. And if you'll trust him for freedom, he'll give you a kind of freedom that doesn't come with the mastery of sin in your life, where you'll be dominated by sin in your life. He'll give you a kind of freedom that comes with the knowledge of who you are because you will belong to him. Will you believe him to restore the meaning and the purpose in your life this morning? Will you ask him to break the shame and to break the questioning that you felt and give you a renewed sense of of purpose and of being and of hope in him? Listen, I'm not suggesting that these are light issues at all and that you're not gonna deal with temptation again. What I'm saying is that you shouldn't believe the lie that the devil wants to tell you that you're alone. God loves you, and he wants to deliver you, but the world's way of offering deliverance is not the right way to receive deliverance. When you feel tempted to give in to despair, when you feel tempted to seek meaning elsewhere, remind yourself that you were bought with a price. If you're tempted to think that people here at church would not love you if they knew your struggle, well, I can't guarantee that everyone's going to handle your struggle the way that they should, I wanna encourage you to do this. Remember again that the devil is a liar. And if he could convince you that others are gonna judge you rather than love you, he will do that so that he can keep you from experiencing love and healing and forgiveness that can actually bring about transformation and the knowledge of who you are in Jesus instead of just trying to flounder around, figuring out for the rest of your life, who am I really? God will give that to you. He wants to keep you, the enemy, trapped in your own thoughts and pull you away from people that could help. So I want to encourage you not to let him do that. Talk to someone that you trust, a believer that you trust about the struggle that you're experiencing, 
so that they can pray with you and they can help you to understand who you are in Christ. Talk to a pastor so they can bring encouragement about how Jesus can set you free and how he can give you purpose and hope and meaning in your life. Talk to someone who can support you and help you to understand how God sees you and how he values you with the blood and body of his own son Jesus and who can help you grow in the knowledge of who you are in Christ instead of just constantly searching and building somebody who's disconnected from Jesus and doesn't have a firm foundation of understanding, I was bought with a price. I want to glorify God in my body. Today, you may not have a relationship with God through Jesus at all, and maybe this feels like a strange message for you, but I want to assure you that God loves you and he loves you with the price of his son, Jesus. He paid a price for you. Scripture teaches us that the wages of our sin is death. That when we sin against God, when we choose to go our own way, that what results is separation from God. It does result in the separation in relationships in the current life, in our, in our, in our current relationships. It results in pain and, and brokenness and eventually in the death of our bodies. But the ultimate kind of death is the one where you're separated from God, your purpose and your meaning for all eternity. And that's exactly what we've been talking about this morning because the biggest question you have to answer in your life is not who am I, but whose am I? And this morning, the answer to that question for you can be, I was bought with a price. God paid the price of his son Jesus for me. And the Bible says this, that if you're separated from God and you're living in the brokenness of your sin and you're living apart from him and you don't have him in your life and you don't have an assurance that he loves you, that that can be yours. And it's not yours because you clean yourself up. It's not yours because you make yourself better. It's not yours because you found a way to look good on Sunday mornings. It's only yours when you receive the free gift of God through Jesus by faith in him. Scripture says this, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe or have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this morning I wanna give you that opportunity if you just close your eyes for a moment, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, if you don't know him, and today you've been asking the question perhaps, who am I, and you've sensed the, the, the work of God in your heart drawing you to him. And you want to know today, not just who am I, but whose am I. You want to know today that you belong to Jesus, that he's forgiven you, that he's made you right with him. And I'm going to ask you to do something simple but bold so that I can pray with you and for you. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, but today you want to begin that. You want to, by faith, receive his work for your life. You want to receive forgiveness. You want to receive his healing. You want to receive his promises of eternal life that's you, you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, would you just lift up your hand if you're joining us online, you can just text the word HOPE to 413-300-6061, we'll respond to you that way, is there anybody like that? I'm going to wait for just a minute, keep your eyes closed for a minute because I want to ask you something pretty serious and this is really between 
you and the Lord, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond today in some way because for some of you, uh, perhaps you are struggling with some of the things that we spoke about today from God's Word, and maybe it is an addiction, uh, a sexual addiction of some kind. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe you've even been questioning your own identity and your own sexuality, your own gender, and you've been struggling and wrestling with that, and, and you're trying to figure out who you are, and you've got a relationship with Jesus, but you've had doubts recently about yourself, and you've had questions, or you've got a relationship with Jesus, you, you uh, put your faith in him at one point, but there's been something in your life that you could say, this has had mastery over me. I'm not free, but there's some sin, be it sexual or otherwise, that has had mastery over you. It's just kept you enslaved. And I'm gonna ask you to uh, take the bold step today um, to confess that before God. So I do want to ask you, please keep your, keep your eyes closed because this is just intended to be a step that individuals are taking before God today to uh, confess and to repent and to ask him for his help. But if, if that's you, you, you would say, I've got something in my life that has the mastery over me. I'm not living as if I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, as if I've been joined to Christ, but instead there are things in my life that I know have bound me in slavery to sin. And I want to ask God for freedom today. Or there are things that I've been confused about, and I want to ask him for clarity today through Jesus. Would you just lift up your hand so that I can pray for you? Is there anybody like that? And today, before you leave, you want to say, I want to, I want to experience freedom from this. I know that that's a bold ask, and maybe you're afraid to do it, but how much better would it be to risk somebody peeking and be free in Jesus because you just took that step of saying, Jesus, I want to confess to you. I want to be right with you. Then it would be to leave and be enslaved to sin. Is there anybody like that? You have the boldness this morning, the, the sense of conviction from the Spirit to say, I need to make this right right now. I need to lay this down. Would you just lift up your hand? Is there anybody like that? Something in your life has a mastery over you. Anybody else like that? I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to lift you up in prayer, those who lifted their hands. But in a moment when we close the service, our prayer partners are going to come. They're going to be available to pray for any number of things in your life. Uh, or if you want to respond to salvation this morning. But if there's something in your life that's been holding you, you've been enslaved to it, you can't genuinely say, I'm free in Jesus. I've, I'm walking as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is leading my life. I want to encourage you to come and pray with one of them. The scripture says that if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't leave without doing that and being cleansed this morning. Heavenly Father, today you know those who are living a life where they're bound to something. There's something in their lives that has mastery over them. They've been enslaved to sin and they're not walking with you as if they're free in Jesus. Maybe they're not living the reality that they're a temple of the Holy Spirit whom they have from God, that they were bought with a price. So they're not glorifying you in their bodies like they should. Lord, I pray that today as they've taken the bold step of just lifting their hands, 
and confessing to you before you this morning. I ask that you begin to bring freedom to them. I ask, Lord, that you would encourage them this morning with the truth of your word, that they belong to you. They were bought with a price. I ask, Lord, that you would give them such a firm sense of your presence in their lives, of the Holy Spirit's transforming presence. I ask that the old things would be swept out, that you would cleanse hearts and you'd make holy. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to experience a renewal today that would free them from this mastery of sin and enable them to walk in the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. And Lord, we pray for our church. Lord, we know the promises of God. We've heard them today, that we were bought with a price. We should glorify God, that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would help us as a congregation to live in a manner that expresses that. Help us, Lord, not to be enslaved again to sin, but help us, Lord, to walk in the liberty of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'd help us to see that every moment and every circumstance is an opportunity for us to be representatives of Jesus because you've joined us to yourself and filled us with your presence. We thank you for that, Lord, and ask that even today as we go, you would help our eyes to be opened, that we might not be ignorant of your presence, but that you would help us to live and act like temples of your spirit. We love you, Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen.